This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is interior designer Michael S. Smith. There are dream clients, and then there's the young family that Michael helped settle in at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue back in 2008. As the official decorator of the Obama White House, he not only had a front row seat to history, but became part of it, an experience Michael recounts in a new book coming out this fall. We chatted about how he landed the president as a client, the secret code he used to refer to the Obamas, and the unique challenges that come with designing America's most famous house. This podcast is sponsored by High Point Market. There's a lot of excitement in the home furnishings world as High Point Market exhibitors prepare to present a dazzling array of new products at Fall Market, October 13th through the 21st. This year, in addition to checking out all those new launches, you'll want to check out the special registration process for the new extended nine-day market schedule. So when you go to highpointmarket.org register to request your passes, be sure to read the simple instructions on how to select your primary attendance period. That's highpointmarket.org register. I'll see you there. This podcast is also sponsored by PaintZen. Designers are all too familiar with the challenge of finding a great, reliable painter or wallpaper installer. Well, PaintZen is making it easy. With a national network of experienced and vetted professionals and a dedicated project manager for every job, PaintZen simplifies the process. Wherever you are, you can get a quick and easy online quote, not just an estimate. Best of all, designers can join PaintZen's trade partner program to earn 10% back on booked projects. Visit paintzen.com to find out just how easy painting can be. That's paintzen.com. And now, on with the show. Michael, thank you so much for making the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Of course. I'm super happy to do this. It's great. Michael, you've built a career working with wealthy and often famous people, which I know can present many challenges, privacy and security concerns among them. How did that prepare you for working with the White House? You know, the objective and thing you want to avoid is creating news, right? So the issue is the thing that's been in my past, which really galvanized me, is if you've ever been in the middle of a celebrity divorce, you absolutely understand (laughs) uh, what is great advanced training for working on something like the White House, right? You realize that, look, you know, there's that old thing, first do no harm, first make no news, right? Don't do anything that could put you or your client in any, you know, any, any level of high profile client in any kind, you know, in any kind of press or legal or, you know, (laughs) kind of gossip position. And I think that those things are just baked into my life experience, fortunately. So it was very easy to look at this project and this structure with an understanding and a kind of predisposition to be very, very cautious about those kinds of things. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like you've had a lot of experience and I, and I hope not caught up in too many celebrity divorces in your past. <laughs> well, I've never been named in a celebrity divorce, <laughs> thank God. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, but I've moved a lot of beds from one house to another in my life. You know what I mean? So yeah, <laughs> so course. no, never, never, yeah, I've never been a, a principal and a celebrity, but the, you know, listen, I still have a couple of years, you never know. Listen, but, there's still plenty of time. <clears throat> yeah, totally. 
maybe that's yeah. something to aspire to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think I think that that's a it's a very good question. And I think again, I think what's surprising, and I think I kind of allude to it in the book. Nobody really comes to you with a guide and says things like, "If you want to borrow a painting." you know, make sure it's not hanging on a wall, right? Like it's an obvious, but people wouldn't necessarily think, well, it's a white house. I should take it to, you know, it's absolutely cool to take that painting down. Well, that's an incredible story in the Washington post. The president takes down a painting from a museum for his own personal use. You know, it's like those things, you know, you don't, it's, it's a, it's a job you don't want to learn on the job, right? It's, it's, it's not on the job training for something like this is really scary. And I think that in any administration, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter the party, doesn't matter the thing. I mean, with the exception of maybe Secretary Clinton, you know, they don't know the ropes. I mean, the the, the White House, it's like being handed the, the biggest example of being handed a car that's a stick, but you don't know how to drive a stick. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, you of learn course, as yeah. you go. And so people who were taking over positions in the White House and at the administration level, didn't know to call the decorator and say, don't take a painting down. I mean, it's just, you realize how you could make mistakes and how you could put everybody, including yourself, in a in a position of being criticized. And so, you know, you just, it was good. I knew I knew what not to do, basically. Well, and, and yeah, I think, and it sounds like that was very helpful. And I, I want to get into some of the specifics around the the parameters of, of working in the White House. But I, I wonder if, you could share with us the story of of how it first came to be that you were selected to be the the decorator for the the White House, the the designer. It's a kismety situation. It's a you know again. I even think I've spoken to you about this in the past. I think it was a it's like if I'd missed a phone call, if I'd been whatever. You know, it's just so I you know the the President Obama is President elect Obama in November, the end of November. James Costas, my partner, and I go to Jamaica for Thanksgiving, which is amazing. We're sitting on the sand, <laughs> and my cell phone rings. It's at the time it's uh, Desiree Rogers, who I just spoke to again this morning, uh, who was being made the the social secretary right. for the Obamas, and she had heard through a mutual friend of ours, uh, actually a woman called Catherine Malkin, who lived in the same building as Desiree in Chicago, that you know, that they should talk to me about the, about doing the decoration for the White House. And it's just very funny because my friend Catherine, she and I had been on the phone a couple of weeks before talking about what I thought was essential in the DNA of the White House, you know, the kind of things that should happen, the kind of artisans, the kind of craftspeople, things like that. And she said to me, she's a very definitive and kind of sort of incredibly high functioning person. And she said, I'm going to get you this job. And, well, and she seems like this incredible advocate. I mean, she really, Oh my God. Work. Well, <laughs> right. Because she sent a letter, which only when the book went to press, did I ever see the letter? Cause I, she, she sent a copy of it. It's in the book. Clearly it worked its way through the system and Desiree called me. So there was enough of a, you know, I kind of knew enough to not say, Oh, this is a joke and hang up like in a movie. But, and then over Thanksgiving week, you know, while I'm in Jamaica, basically there's a series of questions. There's a series of uh, vetting things. There's a series of, you know, even budgeting things, which felt sort of so removed. At the end of the week, I got a call saying, well, they've decided to hire you. Now, anybody who does what we do or even related to we to what we do knows you don't get hired until you meet the client, right? They could be like, I don't like you. You don't like them, right. whatever. So I went to Chicago to meet with the Obamas um, the week after Thanksgiving and with Desiree went to their house, which is this charming 
house, you know, by the University of Chicago and met with them and met the girls who were tiny children and mm. met the president who it's, it's in the book, which is really funny. He said, call me Barack. And I said, you know, that was the, the first and last time in it, basically 10 years <laughs> I ever called him Barack. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just so, so this began a kind of affection and a kind of appreciation, you know, kind of at first sight. I mean, they were unbelievably warm. They were unbelievably great at communicating what they wanted, really collaborative, really understanding. And it's a relationship. I mean, I saw them a week ago, right? So it's yeah. it's, it's a relationship that continues. And it's, you know, kind of a great gift to me. And, you know, it was incredibly hard and incredibly taxing for eight plus years. But for <laughs> someone who's obsessed with history, I mean, I got one of the greatest not only did I have to make the seat, but I got to sit in it. So that was kind of great. So you, you get the news, you, you, you meet the Obamas, you have sort of this, this right. great moment, right? And, and President Obama or President-elect Obama at the time, he, he sort of jokes that you'll be included in the history books that are written about <laughs> yes. him, right? I'll be woven into his history, yes. <laughs> yes. And I was like, let's see, let's see how this goes. And that was just, again, a kind of knee-jerk reaction to, you know, just understanding that there was a long road ahead and not wanting to, I, I don't want to do the rap party now, you know, let's, let's talk about it after. And he was so. He's already talking about the history books. I know. Right? And he's talking about the history books and I'm like, ah, I got to get your kids beds in two weeks, you know? Yes. So. <laughs> well, that was the other thing. I mean, you had this really tight time frame suddenly, really right? Really Really so, tiny. so, so, tell us about tell us about that because you, you I mean, you you basically get the nod that they right. they like you, right? right? Michelle Obama gives you a, a hug, and you're feeling I like got, I got oh. a hug. <laughs> so a you're feeling okay. Yeah, I've I've got the I've got the job, I guess. Uh, care, right. Careful what you wish for, because right? N- right? Because now you've suddenly got right. a swing I- into action, and 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 how did that? How did you start? Where did you begin? Did people have to inform you about the rules? I mean, what happened? No, I mean, no, not, I mean, not essential, not basically. I mean, the first, first sort of business was to really put together, look, they were very clear and Mrs. Obama was very, very clear about the idea that the girls' rooms were her most critical concern, right? Because you have these Mm -hmm. very sweet, I mean. Very sweet little girls at the time. They're grown up now. And they're amazing, amazing girls, really amazing. But they were little, little, little kids. And I think that idea of moving, and I saw their rooms, they showed me their rooms in Chicago, which were so dear and kind of wonderful. And their parents had just kind of redone their rooms. You know, this idea of moving from this really, you know, residential scale space in a neighborhood that they'd grown up in you know, with and leaving their friends and their, you know, everything and moving into this relatively daunting, really daunting experience and <laughs> really daunting. fishbowl and, you know, daddy right. leaves for work in a helicopter. I mean, you know, it's not, not, <laughs> not a normal thing for. And so I think that understandably, Mrs. Obama was very interested in making sure her children were comfortable and that they were, and that the rooms reflected them and that they were charming and that they felt comfortable. And, you know, and so that was my first order of business. And and I really spent a lot of time, you know, the first thing I walked into that meeting with was some samples of colors and 
sort of bright swatches and and I showed the girls and they, you know, they said like, you know, I can't, I mean, I can't remember exactly, but it was something like that Sasha wanted a pink room and Malia wanted a blue room and, hmm. you know, and so that was really set into play a kind of sense for the entire time and actually everything I've ever been involved with, with this family um, of being so thoughtful. You know, I kind of talk about it a lot in the book, but it's like the culture of being thoughtful of being empathetic in the macro way, but also just being thoughtful of every detail and trying to be making these things as as good as you can in a way that, you know, not, I mean, just really, really listening and really trying to derive from the short amount of time I had a kind of sense of how to bridge this pretty normal, sweet, you know, kind of young family into putting them into like this fairly daunting um, experience. Tell us some of the some of the specific challenges of working on a job like this. And again, <clears throat> you've worked you've worked with very high profile <laughs> clients, but, but this is this is different. And 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 vendors have to go through some sort of process, <clears throat> I'm sure. Right. And I mean, tell me tell me some of the specifics of of actually working in the in the White House and and, and what it entails. Well, look, I mean, let's just uh, I'll give you a really easy parallel, right? You buy a lamp for a client, right? So you go to you know somebody and you say okay i want this lamp you go to roselli or you go to whatever christopher spitzmiller who actually ended up doing a lot of lamps for us having had yes. having the fact that christopher had worked in the white house himself so he was super savvy um, and they worked really well with what we're trying to do so you go to buy a lamp so the person you buy a lamp from has to be vetted to make sure that they aren't a violent criminal that, you know, all these different things, these criteria. So that, that person has to be vetted. Then you buy the, so that's, I, I breeze by that, but that's not an insignificant amount of time. So it's like, I need a lamp on Tuesday. I have to, they have to be vetted. They have to be approved as a, you know, an acceptable vendor. And who's vetting them? I mean, is the FBI step in and go? No, I don't, I don't No, or, I think I it's, mean, it's a, no, I think it's a, it's the white house has people who do that. They have a team. Right. I have a team. And, you know, there were people who were knocked out for things like what's interesting is a lot of people say, oh, you know, so and so didn't vet or they didn't couldn't go to the White House or whatever. A lot of times it's stuff like, you know, taxes are pending. You know, it's stuff that you wouldn't it's not like they, you know, blew up a bank or something. I mean, it's something it's like it's a lot of there's a lot of criteria. Something showed up and something shows up. Yeah. Okay. So okay. they, so you buy the lamp. So great. You get the lamp. Then it has to be delivered to a offsite location where it's inspected by security people, heavily inspected. Then it has to come to the physical White House. And then you have to find a time when the family is not around, when they're away, when you can be there, when they, when, when somebody can get into the building and get into the room you know, with security and put the lamp in and plug it in. So, you know, we're talking, so that's different than I want a lamp for you, Dennis. I go to the store, I buy a lamp, I bring it over, I plug it in. You know, this, this, the protracted aspect of from beginning to end, and it's all perfectly reasonable and understand, I mean, beyond reasonable, beyond understandable, but it's, there's, there's a understandable level of security, scrutiny, oversight, et cetera, that goes into the process of getting that lamp. Right, and so this is so that's the thing, right? And it, so it adds, project. yeah, yeah, <clears throat> right. So that adds on time, and <laughs> there's no there's no rushing. I'm like, ah, I'll have that. Let me send you a lamp. No, gotta. It takes a second. And honestly, 
I knew a lot about this. I knew because, you know, I talk about in the book as well that I was sort of friendly with Nancy Reagan. And so I called Nancy Reagan and, and, and asked her advisement and her process stuff. And, you know, and then I'd read every, all these different books and stuff, including one by Mrs. Reagan. And she talked about in the book about how her curtains took a tremendously long amount of time to arrive. So I was like, Oh God, I've got to get those curtains. You know, it sort of made me like, Oh God, that can't happen to us. So there's kind of a good thing. Well, so now tell me, tell me quickly about your relationship with Mrs. Reagan. Well, we we had a mutual friend, um, a dear friend of Mrs. Reagan's, was a, a a friend of mine who had been. She was called Casey Rubikoff. She'd been the married to Abe Rubikoff, who was had been the governor of Connecticut and um, had been a senator from Connecticut, and they had bonded, I think, because both of their husbands had sadly been, um, had suffered from Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I think that they were, for many reasons, very friendly. And I had been seated at a at a sort of event next to Mrs. Reagan. You know, so when I, when I had, when I realized I had, you know, been asked to do this project, I had called Casey and said, you know, do you think I could talk to Mrs. Reagan? And she was, she was, you know, incredibly enthusiastic. And I would call Mrs. Reagan and have these conversations. She was really captivated and um, impressed by the Obamas. So it was interesting. So she just gave me really logistical advice of like what it was like. Oh, great. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. And, you yeah. know, sometimes, honestly, there's a story about we were, James and I were in Paris and we were, you know, it was like the middle of the night, Paris time. And I had Mrs. Reagan on the phone for, you know, a long time. And she really wanted to explain to me all these things about moving into the White House, how, what it was like to live in the White House, the logistics and stuff. And it was sort of like, I just wanted to continue the conversation because it was such an insight. Of course. And such a kind of person telling me about the history of, you know, their experience in it. But it was really wonderful to talk to somebody who had lived in the building uh, for eight years, understood and used the building and really had done so much programming and outreach and stuff. And listen, you know, the interesting thing is people say to me, you know, all this stuff about the White House. I mean, it is really, when you're in it, it's nonpartisan, right? Nobody really ever said to me, you know, what party is your curtain installer or, you know what I mean? There was never, it, it just was That's such a great point, yeah. Yeah. No one ever asked me my political affiliation or anybody. So, so I think that that's, you know, that's part of the legacy of this is that the White House is such an idea, right? It's really not. Yeah. I mean, it's a place, and granted, there's a physicality to it, but it's really an idea, and it's really about the people who work there and how house-proud they all are. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about High Point Market's plans for the fall. High Point Market Authority has been very busy these past few months, working with building owners and exhibitors to develop plans and implement protocols for a safer fall market. The multi-million dollar collaborative effort includes extending market from five days to nine, increased cleaning and disinfecting, limiting capacity within each space, and monitoring staff health. And rest assured that they're committed to doing everything they can to protect attendees. For full details on Market Authority efforts, please visit highpointmarket.org slash HPMKT safe. And now, back to the show. 
for, for you uh, as a as a designer who who's worked on so many different kinds of of projects how are you sort of going back and forth to the to the white house all the time <laughs> how are you sort of juggling all of that i mean you know i know I mean, they look, thought you, you were tried... a one man band yeah no they thought i was a one man <laughs> band uh yeah no i mean i basically you know i think i think they did think i was a one man band number 1 they were incredibly patient and gracious and understanding you know they they were never at no point did i ever get a call saying you know they're very impatient where is this i mean never so that was incredible and different you know to most projects um and then the other thing is listen we had this incredible support team i mean to have Hmm. bill allman who who had been the curator of the white house the chief curator for a long time but had also been in the, the curator's office in the White House since the Carter administration. I mean, A, a wealth of unbelievable institutional knowledge, history, everything, knew really every piece in the collection, but also was, you know, my kind of partner in process, right? So if we couldn't be there and we had to measure a window or get a lamp to, to just, you know, hammer the lamp narrative into the ground, to put a, <laughs> put a lamp or, or do, you know, move a chair or, or go through the inventory and say, listen, I need, you know, a table for something in this room or the girls need a, you know, a better lamp on their desk. He would send me images of, look, this lamp was in the Bush administration. This lamp was in the forward administration you know like choices you know anyone who's who was in the building at that for those eight years including from the obamas down understood how bill was so amazing and made everything happen again whether it was moving sofas to create a tent so the girls could have a sleepover to (laughs) having christmas parties for 500 or getting red wine out of the blue room sofa or you know or identifying a piece of the suite of furniture for the red room and trying to find out how the white house could purchase it to put in the permanent collection i mean really amazing yeah well it's he sounds incredible and and it sounds like he had a, a tremendous team there you know you mentioned christopher spitzmiller earlier and he sort of knew the ropes a, a little bit because he had <laughs> right, been right. There, exactly right yeah <laughs> but 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 not everybody did and and i wonder when when the word sort of got out that you were designing the the, the white house were were vendors just sort of throwing themselves in front of you was that was that a tremendous challenge and i mean um what, what yeah, I mean, look, again, again, I I kind of wasn't my first thing I'd ever done where people would start to get, sure. you know, kind of activated, right? It wasn't my first thing that people were, um, I understood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing, too, it was a while before I was announced. So there was a lot of speculation and kind of people knew and, you know, there are people who were aware who were helping me do stuff and like Margaret Russell knew and she was sort of helping me to source things and things like that. Um, so there were my core people knew, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was sort of an understandable situation. I mean, I think the thing was really trying to keep a lid on people sort of publicizing stuff, right? So right. the idea is I would call, buy something, chair or whatever. And they, and you know, the thing is also because I was buying it, they, and because our, my, the way my whole practice is organized, people don't know who my clients are. We have like a code for how we purchase things and stuff. And so, (laughs) you know, people didn't really know 
what it was. So, and I think the code there's, I'm giving, I'm going to give away part of my secret code, but part of the code was Bob. So Bob was the, our handle, our secret code for the White House. Ah, okay. How was it Bob? Who was Bob? Well, it's always, it's always um, letters of a name and then some other things. So, you know, Barack Obama, Bob. So Bob was, you know, what's the side mark? The side mark is Bob. You know, so there was a lot of that. So right. we were already preset for that, right? Because it was every other client from Cindy Crawford to, you know, whoever had a code. And so there people were always sort of speculative and people are smart. People know and people talk and stuff. So there is a sort of understanding in, in some areas. But yeah, then people called and the issue was not so much that would people offer me stuff or say, you know, do you want to buy this? whatever chest from Lincoln's bedroom or whatever it was more trying to keep people from publicizing what had happened and you know there were a couple episodes where I bought a bed like you know and I bought it right I ended up lending it to the White House but it was my purchase and it was sort of like press release the Obamas buy this bed well I bought the bed they didn't buy the bed and it was sort of a bummer because then we had to call and say or the White House would call and say you know you have to you know very much of the White House stuff for any president is based on trying to not use the white house to monetize stuff, right? Like to not be like, you know, the white house uses ivory soap or whatever, you know, like they really frown on that. (laughs) And I think what's funny is a lot of people think that that would be okay. And you know, it's fine. I mean, it just took, there were people who would call us and say, "Ah, I have this thing for you and we want to do this for you. And you know, and I'd be like, okay, you know, we can't publicize that. And that would be the end of that. So, you know, it's just, it was just a, again, it was something that was not unfamiliar to me that if I didn't know the ramifications of something like that, I probably would have screwed up, but, but I knew. So I, there were very few episodes and I think people realized to our core people who we work with were like conscious of the fact that listen, one day you'll have your moment, right? One day you can say that the White House was a client. One day you can put that on your website. And, you know, there was a whole code of how to handle it and what to do when things like I could never, you know, I would, I, you know, people would try to offer us discounts and stuff. And I really couldn't take, you know, there was just a lot of, there's a lot of ethics, a lot of, of really strong understand at the beginning, it felt like, wow, this is really restrictive and tough. And at the end, not even at the end, very quickly, you realize, wow, these things really protect you. Not only do they protect the White House, but they really protect you because they're really about keeping keeping everything in check in terms of publicity and attention and what's appropriate and you know so well, it's good and, and yeah yeah no no absolutely and and I think that you already had a reputation a strong reputation for discretion. I think what people don't realize, probably in retrospect, is for. I, I issued a statement with the White House when it was announced, and then I never spoke to the press about the Obamas or the White House for eight years. The first kind of discussion of the White House in any way, shape, or form is the December Architectural Digest before the president left in January. Never gave an interview, never gave a quote, ever, 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 for eight years. I mean, it was really interesting. So I think people think that there was more information than they than there was, but... Until that December issue, no one had been upstairs. No one had seen it. It was a, it was a mystery for for almost a decade, which is kind of great. 
Well, I think it is kind of great, and and I think it it, it seems as if perhaps that's a that's a great model for for people to to really use in many of these situations. Well, I think it's just often people listen. Publicity is interesting for many people. I think there it has merit, but I think that it's become its own sense of achievement, right? And I think that it's fine. I just the fun the fun was honestly doing it. The fun was. You know, there's nothing, no matter how many times you go to the White House, it's thrilling every time. You know, it's kind of, it's it's great. It's, it, it, it was, it's an incredibly mesmerizing thing to be, to be involved, especially when I, I mean, it's, you know, for me, who was so obsessed with history my whole life, I mean, it was like, you know, it was, it was kind of unbelievable. So that, well, was, that did, was pretty good. And where did that come from for you, Michael? I don't that, know. That I obsession. think probably reading, probably being such a weird kid and just being obsessed <laughs> with reading and history. And then there's this very weird thing where I was, you know, so immersive as a kid. You know, I would decide to read all books only on Japan for three months and I would only eat Japanese food and I'd take my bed off its frame, put it on the floor. You know, it just was very, really. Um, you really would immerse obsessed. yourself in the experience. Completely. <laughs> and so I think that idea, then it was really, then I had to find like a job I could do, right? That could actually utilize the wackiness of my brain. <laughs> and it felt like, well, this was great because it was about, it dawned on me, I don't know why, that the history of any aspect of decorative arts was the history of the world, right? If you just look at the history of silver, right? Or the history of like right. dishware, it's the history of the world. Like you, you can take it back. You can see what, how history impacted you know, all these things. And so for me, that was amazing. And then to be able to immerse in history, to immerse in a particular period, to immerse yourself in a kind of architectural decorative way, and then to be able to like create hybrids of the two, right? So it's like, you know, 18th century French rooms with, you know, early American duck decoys or whatever, like that you could combine the two and create these whole new combinations with something that was completely mesmerizing and is still mesmerizing to me. So I think that, you know, so anyway, to this, to have this amazing seat in history. And I knew why I was hyper aware that his, that I was in the sort of eye of history, the eye of the storm of history, that stuff was happening around me that was going to be, you know, I mean, I didn't know when I was sitting at this spoken word event at the white house and you see, Lin-Manuel do the beginnings of what would be Hamilton, that this would be Hamilton. But you knew that it was amazing, right? And it was just fresh and you'd never seen anything like it. Or, you know, to see an evening of uh, Latinx music in the Garden of the White House with all these people from, you know, these incredible groups. And, you know, I mean, it's amazing. And then because I sort of, develop this relationship with the family that, you know, I was invited to state dinners and, you know, I mean, come on. It was kind of insane. It was pretty, I mean, to, pretty, pretty fabulous. Yeah. Right? To sit I mean, next yeah. to Cicely Tyson at the yeah. French state dinner. I mean, you know, yeah, just another day. day pretty, pretty amazing yeah. experience all, all around. Does it for your firm and for the rest of your work, does it sort of forever change how mm-hmm. you are introduced or, or how you're referred to to potential new clients? I mean, are you suddenly now the designer who worked on the <laughs> I mean, um, is that forever? I don't. I mean, 
you know what you would have to ask other people because it's one of those areas <laughs> where you i i don't know i mean okay. i think yes for many doors yes did it really right. change my practice you know for growth and stuff not really um but but in the world presumably i'm better known now but it's too i'm too close to, uh, the answer is i don't know you would probably okay. know better than i um <laughs> no i was gonna say the majority of my practice which is an incredible honor is still the majority of my practice is still clients that i've had for a very long time you know yes. they're their houses it's the children of clients it's clients you know move but you know, the basic foundation of my practice is still really people who I've already worked, who I'd worked for for a very long time. So the answer in that regard is probably not to a big base uh, aspect of it. Other people, yes, but then also a lot of my clients that I have are still word of mouth from other clients that I have. So it, listen, it doesn't hurt, right? Right. It right. doesn't hurt. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about Paint Zen. Designers, there's no need to spend hours digging up a great painter or wallpaper installer. PaintZen has done it for you. With a national network of experienced, vetted professionals and a dedicated project manager for every job, PaintZen makes it easy. Even in these challenging times, PaintZen is open for service, ensuring that customers, painters, and partners are staying safe by following local guidelines. You can get a quote, not just an estimate, remotely. And book now, schedule later, for maximum flexibility. Best of all, designers earn 10% back on book projects. Visit paintzen.com to find out just how easy painting can be. That's paintzen.com. And now, back to the show. So let's talk about uh, one of the aspects of your, of your business, which is Jasper. And I know that Jasper has recently moved to a new home in the Pacific Design Center. I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about Jasper and what it is and sort of what it represents for you. Well, I think the idea long, you know, kind of long ago, I mean, just talking to <laughs> somebody. Ago. I told, no, I mean, listen, I'm getting really old. It's really scary. Stop it. No, Stop no, no. It. I've been in business for 30 years. It's like I used to be 30. I mean, it's crazy. Um <laughs> That's clearly an obvious note, but whatever. Um, I think but I'm glad I you started, drove it home nonetheless. Yeah, I know. It's just the abstract is there, right? Like that's why Zoom calls are killing me. I'm like, wow, I really need to get that lower lift. Soon. This is what I look like? No, it's like, wow, so much gray. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, there's nothing as better as an unexamined visual life, right? I look great, right? Because I can't, all mirrors out of here. But I think that with Jasper, I think very early on, you know, I've always been so, so um, obsessed with things like fabric and the making of stuff, the specialization, the customization of things. And so I think really early on, Jasper was this idea of I started to make stuff, right? So I would go to the flea market in Paris and buy a table and it would be this incredible table for a project. And I would be like, this is beautiful and it's not... You know, it wasn't something that cost a lot of money or anything. It was just that it was the right vibe or the right energy or it just was great. And then I would have to sell it and it would be gone forever. So it seemed like a very simple thing. And it was really when I met with, uh, I, you know, I knew, I knew Randy Arzinski. I knew the Randolph and Hine guys. And I was, he said to me, you should make furniture. 
you should make some of this stuff. It's great because he saw he came to the office or something and he said, you know, all this stuff that you're making for clients, you should make. And so we started to make stuff. And then we had this idea that it should be called Jasper because I was obsessed. I met a dog in Kansas City (laughs) (laughs) called Jasper. I thought, Jasper's such a good name. It means everything and nothing. It's a sweet name. And then I ended up getting a dog and naming it Jasper, who is one of the sweetest dogs ever in history. Yeah. Um, and was, and, you know, so it was this great idea. And then again, with, with, I had done a collection of fabric with Cowton and Tao, which I loved doing. And I loved working with all these mills and I loved just the creative part. It was just another door, right? Another extension of what I was already doing. And then when we sort of stopped doing that, I said, you know, let's start our own fabric company. Um, because I kind of knew the ropes now I, you know. I was you thought you were ready to start savvy. your own fabric company. <laughs> yeah, start my own fabric yeah. company. That was a really good idea. It only <laughs> took about, you know, 15 years to break even. It was fine. And, <laughs> you know, and it was just really, because I'm like, well, if I like it, everybody will like it, right? Naturally, um, right. Not fly necessarily true. But so anyway, so that was, so it was great. So it was a great exercise and learning exercise and you know, and it continues on. I mean, look at these businesses. I have so much respect. These businesses are hard businesses. You know, they're really tough. You know, it's hard to make something once. It's really hard to make it 15 times. It's really hard. You know, it's just, it's very, very hard. And we opened a showroom because we thought, well, that's, we don't have enough to do. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just add that. Let's just, yeah. let's just double down. And so we opened a showroom <laughs> on Melrose and that was great. And, you know, in, in, in the aspect of, of uh, and it was really fun. And we, we had, you know, we had this great idea that we just would get everyone whose stuff we loved, Robert Kime and Elizabeth Dow and Vaughn and all these vendors that we had worked with and loved um, and had a relationship with. And so we sort of carried them. And so it worked, it worked well. And now we had this great idea of, you know, we had all this space and it was time to move. And did we want to, continue to pay very, very expensive rent, which is the, the, the tough part for almost all businesses in our sector, right, is the rent. Sure. So we thought, part. let's move to the Pacific Design Center. And a lot of people were like, you know, listen, it's always a pendulum in our business. People move into the PDC, they move out of they Then there's a thing that's like, oh, we all have to be on the streets. Everybody moves to the street. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth. Having no idea that in this moment that this would happen, that a, we'd be struck by a plague, you know, and the economic <laughs> ramifications yeah. of the plague. And that, you know, that this was probably, though it's really officially, it's closed to, to the public, but we can finish it and build it out and do all that stuff. That in when it opens, that this consolidation that's occurred of fabric companies and stuff will actually be incredibly good because I think people are going to feel more comfortable in a controlled environment and they're not going to want to park and walk and park. and You know, they're going to feel like I'm going to go out into the world. I'm going to go to a design center. I'm going to buy everything, get everything I need in a safe, you know, environment where, you know, people are going to feel like it's more controlled. And I think it's going to have turned out to be a really smart move because I think that people are going to be, you know, timid for a long time about how they, operate and how they you know go from one store to another or they you know i think i think that it's going to feel like fishing in a barrel a little bit and safe i think people will find it 
helpful and useful. And it's, it's much easier. You know, listen, if I was going to go shopping, you know, the ability to go to, you know, Kravit, you know, all that stuff on one in one swoop is just infinitely easier in this moment, right? Right. No, 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 absolutely. And, and I think that may well be one of the lingering effects of this time is that people will feel safer and want to be able to, to do everything all at once. And in an interesting way, perhaps that's what design centers will, will be for people uh, in, in that respect. No, I think they feel protected and they feel controlled. And I think we're just going to be, look, at. I think people are going to be timid. I think we're not going to say, oh, I'm going to go from one experience to another, you know, in and out of shops, some with people have masks, some people, you know, it's like, I think you want to... Go get what you need, be creative and talented and curious. But I think you want to kind of have a relatively controlled experience, right? I think for a while, I think it's a natural thing. Yeah. People are going to be yeah. hesitant. Sure. And, and, and to your earlier point, I mean, you, you really sort of turned your, your business into this into this multi-line showroom, right? I mean, you're, right. you really are, are, are running. <laughs> why not, Dennis? Why not? <laughs> why not? Because that's not complicated. Yeah. That's not, that's no. not challenging. No, 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 it wouldn't. No. No. Well, and how are you, how are you sort of dividing your, your time with all of that? How are you dividing your time between? Well, there've been a lot of, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of focus on the show right now because we're getting it open and trying right. to deal with, you know, and then, you know, there's another open and then we have to close again and then we're open, yeah. you know, so we're, yeah. I, you know, I think, and things are coming from Europe and they're late and, you know, all the logistics everyone is experiencing, you know, we're really focused. Listen, our sector has been unbelievably spared in many places, in many, you know, ways, the fate of a lot of other, you know, kind of businesses. And it's kind of, it's, 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 um, has made me incredibly mindful of other people's problems and what's happened. I mean, if you look at the restaurant business, you look at, you know, I mean, people have been so hit. I don't know how to, I would recover if that was the focus of my business. But, you know, our business clients are, are, have been in their houses and they want to do things to their houses um, in the short term. And so we've been really, really busy and I really feel incredibly fortunate. So the showroom, even closed, the showroom has been doing much better than I would have expected. And, you know, our team has been working remotely, which has been challenging. But everyone, you know, I think wants to, you know, put in the effort to, to, to make things as normal and as smooth and as professional as they can. And I think it's in the face of sort of fears that people have never in our lifetimes haven't had to deal with. I think everyone's been unbelievable about that. And we feel very, very fortunate. But, you know, you look around and, you know, I just feel for so many other businesses that are, it's just luck of the draw for us, right? It wasn't. Uh, it, it, exactly. You know, and uh, honestly, the, the the last financial crisis was so much more challenging for the home industry and and many companies didn't didn't come through that this time around as you say with with home just sort of by chance being such a focus and to your point being a place of of comfort for people they are focused on that they're not traveling yeah. they're not yeah. spending yeah, this money exactly. in, right in all these other areas uh, and and you were traveling so much i mean talk about frequent flyer miles i mean you were constantly uh traveling for clients traveling right. to spain no, all the time uh, yeah no, right and and so i'm wondering as as you think about sort of the the long term implications of this, and h- how do you think about 
your business and your life, and, and do you find yourself feeling like you're going to make lasting changes there? Yeah, such a good question. I mean, you know, I think I think what the education for everyone is, nobody really knows. I mean, you do know about, am I going to make lasting changes? I mean, maybe. You know, listen, the kind of complexity and detail aspect of what I do requires me to go places, right? I have to look at stuff. I have to look at things I'm having made in other countries. I have to look at projects I have in other countries. I have to, you know, go from coast to coast to look at things. And I think that though short-term remote working has been valuable, it's really not going to ever substitute. Because then what you're going to find is actually people are going to say, you know what, I'd rather get somebody local, right? Because that is not going to be as, the product is not going to be as good. Because they're just, you just have to go, right? You have to look at stuff. I mean, it's interesting. We're talking a lot with architects who we're working with, because we work with a lot of New York-based firms. And most of them are still working relatively remotely, even in their own offices. You know, there is, we are bumping up against a wall of how to work, right? Because the collaboration of saying, you know, looking at something in three dimension while you're in an office or, you know, around a table and saying, could this be two inches smaller? Could this move over two feet? You know, those things are really hard. They're possible um, on Zoom or, you know, whatever other sort of technology is available. But it's not, it's certainly not as efficient. And we're, we're running into, you know, this has been going on a very long time. And there are things that you just, you need to see a wood sample in the room, right? You need to, and yes. it's, you can, you can only do so much basic stuff before the nuance, right? The small adjustments need to be done in person. And it's just really hard. So, it 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 was it seemed like all was possible the first couple of months like oh we'll just you know we'll just FaceTime and do all these things. The reality of it is it's not going to work forever. I think we either have to be able to go places where people are going to say you know what I'm going to hire somebody in my hometown because I got to have somebody who's here. I've got to have somebody who can come over, you know. But that hasn't happened yet, and we're still in a world where people are basically you know, sheltering in place to some degree, you know, no one's out functioning as they did pre-March really. But I think we're going to have to build, we're going to have to make travel possible, right? For just for business. I mean, you're just going to need to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it seems as if, as this goes on to your point, sort of longer and longer, we we find ourselves thinking that we're we're just going to have to, to build out more and more protections from this so that right. we can carry yeah. out, right? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think, and it's fine. And I think that, again, to your point, what are the big changes? I think the big change is fluidity, right? Just rolling with it. Like, okay, we can open the PDC. Now we're going to close the PDC. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with protecting people? How do we deal with, you know, whatever whatever hits us, whatever comes from whatever direction, how do we be nimble and be prepared to deal with it. And I think that, you know, it is, there is a desire for sort of normal working stuff. I mean, I, I have traveled to the East coast and gone to projects in a mask, you know, and I have projects in 
France and in England that I can't get to. So, you know, that is, we're going to have to figure that out because I'm going to have, because I can, I can continue to work on them, but there will be a period where I have to go because I won't, it just won't be, it's just not viable to think about, you know, decorating in my pajamas. It's not as, <laughs> as much as I want that to be a reality. I just don't think it's sustainable. Yeah. So something's got to give and, uh, and, and, we, and we have to figure it out, right? Right. That, that's the message from, from all of this. Michael, thank you so much for, for making the time to speak with us. I, I really appreciate it. It's been so great to talk to you. Well, thank you. And it's, listen, I, I, I love what you guys are doing and you're so, have created such a kind of great connectivity to, you know, what we all do. And, and um, listen, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's a, you know, we, we all work in what's a real business. Like we have real impact. We put real people to work. And, um, and I think that you've given a real, You've been a very big help in creating credibility and professional sort of understanding of this business, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest news, visit us online at businessofhome.com. An important announcement, the Future of Home Conference is back. Last year's event was a thrilling series of conversations about the issues that matter most in the interior design industry. This year, we're taking the event online. We'll still be live, but the conference will be broadcast directly to you. On September 14th and 15th, join us to hear important discussions with leading thinkers on how the design landscape is being transformed and the challenges and opportunities that have arisen in the midst of a complex time. Tickets are now available, and the attendance is free of charge to BOH insiders. To learn more, visit futureofhome.com. Finally, if you have thoughts or a story of your own to share, please drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. This show was produced by Fred Nicholas and Marina Felix. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>